Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. In our latest episode, myself, Faye Soteri, the international senior watch buyer, and Mark Tolson, global head of watch buying for the Watchers of Switzerland Group, talk about the history and the significance of perpetual calendars in a leap year. So Mark, we sit here in 2020 and it was not just a significant year because we saw a new decade, but also because it's a leap year this year. So we'll see an extra date in February the 29th, a date that we haven't seen in four years. For context, four years ago, Obama was president of the USA. David Cameron was prime minister here in the UK. We hadn't yet had the Brexit referendum and Harry had not yet met Meghan. A lot can happen in four years. So in watch terms across the rich and varied world of horology that you and I work in, there are many different complications, but there's one complication that sole functionality is dedicated to aligning its timekeeping in line with a leap year. So as we we know and love here, it's a perpetual calendar. We're slightly more familiar with its little brother, the annual calendar, whose movement adjusts to a month that has 30 or 31 days, but that can't quite make the leap to a leap year. Do you see what I did there? I do see what you did there, Faye. Yeah, very good. Very good indeed. Okay, the specialism of a perpetual calendar takes on the changes, not just for the 30th and the 31st, but most importantly, the 29th of Feb, we see every four years. So the engineering of these watches really are quite superior. So, Mark, today I thought we could cover why we have a leap year and then tie in the primary function and exclusivity of a perpetual calendar. I'd like to talk about some history around the movement and the principle of the movement. Who made the first perpetual calendar? Which brand does this complication best? Who are the icons in the industry? And perpetual calendar models in the market today. So let's start with some history around the leap year itself. Why do we have it? Well, we used to have the Julian calendar. So the Julian calendar um, expressed time as 365 days plus six hours. So that was a year, 365 days and six hours. And after about a thousand years, the calendar became misaligned with the solstice and the, and the equinoxes. And what was happening was Easter was becoming further and further back from where it was traditionally, tra- traditionally placed in the calendar. Um, so that was the Julian calendar. So in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII, um, he set about correcting uh, this sort of anomaly that had grown up over a period of time. Um, and they worked out that they should have the calendar as 365 days, 5 hours, 49 minutes and 12 seconds, all without the aid of a computer, I'm sure. And then every four years, as with the Julian calendar, they'd have the extra day. But in order to keep the calendar on track, every 100 years at the start of the century, if that new century was divisible by 400, then then you would have a leap year. And if it wasn't, then you wouldn't have a leap year. So in the year 1800, it was a leap year. uh, And in 1900, because it's not wholly divisible by 400, it wouldn't have been a leap year. Just to be clear then, 2100 is, is the next potential leap year, but it's not a leap year because it's not divisible by 400. So um, I'll be 135 then, um, and I'll be interested to see what happens to, uh, to the perpetual calendars at that time. So that's, that's part of the calendar thing. So Pope Gregory set out to solve the problem and realign the calendar, and that's why we have a 365 days a year and then 366 days every fourth year. So that's, that's why we have the calendar. I can envision you just hanging on there just for that sole purpose. Okay, what are the chances of being born on a leap day? Do you know? No. No. Um, one in 1,500. And how many people were born on a leap day? 
Do you know that? For 187,000. 187,000. No, um, in, no it, 4 million people in the world at oh, the right. moment were born on a leap day. So it's quite a small statistic, but that's not why we're here. That's not why we're here, but lots of interesting facts. So the decisions made in um, the 16th century are directly impacting our industry now, which is quite interesting. Um, there's no reason why it shouldn't. However, when you kind of tie it back to see the decisions that were made and why, what they were made for, and our industry is primarily luxury, particularly at the brand products we work in. So I wonder if Pope... Gregory the 13th, the 13th yeah. um, was aware that his decision-making was going to one day lead to the invention of the perpetual calendar. It probably wasn't uppermost in his mind, though. <laughs> uh, I, would, I, mean, when it, I sort of was interested in, uh, in some of the stories about what happened because, obviously, um, the change took place in October 1582, and so the date moved, had to move by 10 days to correct the calendar in order to make the thing work properly. So you went to bed on the 4th of October and you woke up the following day and it was the 15th of October. So that was quite a, that was quite a feat for the, uh, for the people in Europe at the time. Interestingly... Britain, with its sort of slightly isolationist mentality, didn't was still running on the Julian calendar until 1752, and we changed in 1752 to to be more in line with Europe, uh, in line with the, the Gregorian calendar, and we had apparently, uh, from from what I've read, we had calendar riots in 1752, and um, again a little bit like. Uh, like in, in, in 1582, people went to bed on the 2nd of September, 1752, and woke up on Thursday the 14th of September. And there were, there were, there were riots, apparently, and there was the slogan, give us our 11 days back, because people thought they'd had 11 days of their lives stolen from them, which is a little bit bizarre, but there you go. Um, I don't know. I get annoyed when the clocks go forward and I've lost an hour. But 11 days is quite significant, so... I think the, the, fun, the fun story, again, is getting a little bit off track, but some of these things are quite interesting, really. Um, some guy who was obviously fairly sharp at the time, a guy called William Willett um, of Endon in Staffordshire. Um, apparently, he said that he could dance a jig around the village of Endon for, for 12 days non-stop. And, of course, he started it on the 2nd of September, kept going overnight, and on the 14th claimed his winnings because that was the following day. I think he's quite a shrewd man, actually. Quite a shrewd man, yeah. So interesting things. Calendars, eh? Hugely important. So forward to where we are today and the uh, wonderful world of horology that we, you and I are fortunate enough to work in. And you've given us a bit of history around the leap year itself. Who made the first perpetual calendar? The mighty Thomas Mudge. Yeah, indeed. Famous for the inventing the lever escapement, probably the, one of the fathers of, uh, of, well, horology, or English horology, or British horology. And um, I think he made the first one, I think, in 1762. It was a pocket watch, uh, which I think is still in the, in the British Museum. And, uh, yeah, he was the first guy to make a perpetual calendar watch, a pocket watch, as it turned out to be. He was the, he was the royal watchmaker, um, he was appointed the Royal Watchmaker in 1776 and he earned £150 a year, which was a, quite a princely sum in that time. And I think one of the interesting things in this um, slightly weird world of watches that we live in now and the values that seem to get ascribed to watches, um, you know, worn by Paul Newman or, or what have you, um, the astronomical sums they go to at auctions. I think it was in 2016 Sotheby's sold um, one, of the, one of the original Thomas... Um, mugge perpetual calendars and it was sold for £62,500 which in comparison to some of the values that modern watches go for 
is inconsequential when you think that that was the first one. Yeah. Um, and 62,500 is what you'd really pay for a, uh, for a maybe a Patek Philippe perpetual calendar these days. So it's a, it's a skewed world. If you can get one. If you can get one, yeah. yes. Gosh. Um, so that was the pocket watch and the first perpetual wristwatch? Not a lot appeared to happen, really, since, since Thomas Mudge. About 120-odd years after that, Patek, um, Patek Philippe filed for a patent for a perpetual calendar um, in 1889, but they actually created their first perpetual calendar pocket watch in 1864, and that's in the Patek Museum. And um, it must have been for somebody Spanish because the months are in, are in, are in Spanish. Um, and that was it. That was kind of, that was kind of their, their first their first one, um, and then I think in 1925 they used a pocket watch movement that had been made in 1898 and put that into a wristwatch case in the 34 mil uh, wristwatch case, and they actually struggled to sell it because it was still uh, they were still touting it around in 1927 uh, when it was finally sold to Thomas Emery, a U.S. businessman who, uh, who, was, a, who was a fan of Patek Patek complications, so Patek probably have one of the best kind of reputations in perpetual calendars for being for being the first in some respects but theirs was a pocket watch movement going into a, into a wristwatch you can argue breguet made the first wristwatch version with a movement designed for a wristwatch and i think that was 1929 1929 the 2516 yeah uh, which is a, a sort of tonneau shaped case watch which was which was really great but the the main production the main Serial production of, of, of perpetual calendars really began with Patek with the Model 1526 in 1941. Um, so that's, a, that's quite an incredible watch. In layman's terms, what does a perpetual calendar do? Basically, it corrects um, for 30, 31 days in a month, and also every four years it corrects for a leap year. So um, on a normal watch with, with a simple date, um, you start at 1 and you finish at 31 um, and if the day, if, if the if the month is a thirty day one, you have to advance it. Or if it's um, if it's a twenty eight or twenty um, twenty nine, you have you have to alter the date manually. With a perpetual calendar, there's cams and gears within the movement that um, that work out what the date is once it's set up correctly. And then if the watch is is maintained uh, wound and, and telling the time. Um, it will automatically adjust the date so that you don't have to do it. So it knows if it's a 30 or a 31 date month. It knows when a leap year is, so it makes that change. It makes that change automatically. So if it was the 28th of February on a leap year, I would be sitting up um, that night watching it go to 29 because that's what I would be interested in seeing my watch do because that ultimately that's why you've bought it. Um, and then the following year, you wouldn't be waiting for the for the 29th because obviously the 29th wouldn't be there because it's not a leap year. So um, so that's basically what a perpetual calendar does. It adjusts the date um, so you don't have to. And um, the principle of the movement, because this is a watch that has a specific functionality and it's not... We don't see a lot of versions of these because it is complicated. Can you talk us through the principle of the movement? Because this isn't going to be the type of watch that you see um, across many brands on in, it, in every display. If it's capable of changing the dates for and acknowledging the 29th of February every four years, what is it? What, what's the mechanics of it look like, just if you to explain it to a layman's like myself? 
Uh, I mean, the the way uh, the way the date is expressed on a on most perpetual calendars is is um, uh, some are more beautifully executed than others, and people have a um, people have a uh, obviously their their own personal favourites. And coming back to Patek, um, again, they they tend to do it in, in three distinct ways. On certain models, they have subsidiary dials on the main dial, which show you the the day of the week. Um, they show you obviously the date, you know, one to thirty one. Um, they also show you an indication of where you are in the in the four year cycle, um, so you'd know whether you're in a leap year or whether you're one year after a leap year or two years after a leap year, etc. And also the month. So, so with Patek models like the five three two seven, they they sort of express the date through those uh, those subsidiary dials on the, on the main dial. Uh, there's also some brands, and again, Patek is one. Use a combination of, of windows on the dial and, and a retrograde hand. So things like uh, like the, the the model five one five nine, which actually they've just disc- discontinued, but it's it's a sort of beautiful officer's case shaped watch um, with a kind of sunburst um, uh, effect on the dial. Um, and there's at nine o'clock there is a, a date a day of the week window. At three o'clock there's the month window, and then there's a retrograde hand that comes out of the centre of the, uh, of the of the dial and sweeps from one to thirty one, and then flies back or one to twenty eight or one to twenty nine depending on depending on what's going on. But that's that's um, got this retrograde hand which uh, which tells you the date. And then the final one, which is absolutely my favourite, and, and is similar to the way the uh, the, the one five two six expressed the date. There are two little windows around twelve o'clock on the dial. One with the day and one with the month, and then at the bottom of the dial, uh, there's a moon phase, um, and round that moon phase are the dates, uh, the days, the dates rather, one to thirty-one, with a hand pointing at whatever date it is, and that's a beautifully balanced dial. And um, I think it was like 2016, I think it was, when Patek brought out the 5320, um, that expressed the the calendar function in that way, and it's got a lovely kind of. I don't know, kind of creamy coloured dial with these syringe-shaped hands. Uh, really great watch, uh, and that's still in the collection today. So uh, that's probably my favourite. But that's really how how they're expressed, really, uh, through dials or apertures. Okay. So the principle of the movement. I mean, that we're the the principle's the same on all the watches. It's just it's it's the way that the brand expresses them in ter- for so in for some in terms of how it's received so you were talking about the retrograde had on mm-hmm. some doesn't naturally translate that all watches have have that in terms of the date mm-hmm. um some have got slightly more balance to it than others but there's a lot going on anytime you see a perpetual calendar um, watch i would imagine just aesthetics alone because it just gives you a lot of information particularly on the 28th of february every four years yeah there's a lot going on then well you, you want it to because it's sat dormant for four years doing nothing <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it needs a day to chime or to shine or mm-hmm. to um to if, if someone's put the work into it i mean there's um, hundreds of gears to keep precise of the exact dates i would imagine so some of them would only be called into action uh, on that one time because that would be the the point of difference right yeah and in your opinion who does this complication the best yeah what's best uh, well i mean i mean patek have uh, patek have loads in their collection um and I mean, of the watches that we sell from from Patek Philippe, they account for about twenty percent of the value of our sales. I mean, they tend to be quite expensive. They they start around sixty thousand um, pounds, so about ten percent of our units are, are perpetual calendars from Patek, and twenty percent of the value. But um, 
but lots of lots of brands do perpetual calendars these days. I mean, everybody got into the act in in the nineteen twenties. You know, Jaeger made perpetual calendars um, and still do. Um, IWC make perpetual calendars. Breguet obviously still do. Blank Pan. Everybody really does perpetual calendars. Have you got a favourite? Um, I do have a favourite actually. It's the um, Jaeger Master Ultra Thin in steel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not actually a watch I'm emotionally drawn to, but I think, I think if you have an interest in horology and in complications the, and the, how the mechanics work, what Jaeger have done have brought this complicated watch to a, a wider audience. The Holy Grail is always going to be the Patek, in my opinion, and I think mm-hmm. most people would, would agree. Um, what Jaeger have done at 17500 so a very commercial price point. I get we're complacent about pricing when we talk about watches, but as you've already identified, uh, Patek's perpetual start at what, 60000 plus. So it, it brings that to a completely different audience, and if you've got an interest in it and you either can't afford um, one of the other brands that have got... The, the higher price points or start at a higher price point it really does give you that that opportunity to buy into this level of complication um, I like it on the Master Ultra Thin because I've said it before I think Jaeger do dress watches very well they do um, yeah. and I think it's a really I, I think the balance is is great other than the year aperture which is just above the 7 um, everything else is really quite well balanced so on the steel it starts at 17,500 and you've got moon phase it's 39 millimeter case size um, it's also water resistant which i thought was interesting because that's what you need on a, on a perpetual calendar when you're going in <laughs> with your demands on 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 one of these haute horology pieces so i whilst i don't feel emotional about the watch in the way that you'd say what's your favorite i think what uh lecoultre have done with that and the accessibility of that type of product to a wider audience um i'm i'm really impressed with that um, and they all, it obviously goes up in pricing, so they do it in the rose gold for £10,000 more. Uh, you can add some diamonds on for £32,000. Um, in that entire collection, uh, the white gold with the white dial is my favourite. I think it's just a really clean-looking watch because they are busy dials. Mm. I tend to quite like a clean dial and a lot of balance, so just aesthetically um, on that, but really impressed with their steel model with the black or the silver dial. Um, so you think that... Um, Patek do the do that complication best. Are there other icons in the industry across the perpetual calendar? Is there one that people would recognise or be ultimately quite respectful of that it's it's one of those complicated hope horology pieces? I think any any of the great uh, the great brands we mentioned Breguet. Um, obviously, they're they're legendary in in the way they execute watches. Uh, so Breguet would be right up there, Blanc Pan, etc. Um, interesting, I think, is uh, is Audemars Piguet. You think, obviously, because of the history of the perpetual calendar and how it's kind of rooted in in, in a really kind of old-fashioned reworking of the actual physical calendar um, and, and the skill used to make a perpetual calendar from a watchmaker's perspective is all kind of handcrafted and and and, and quite complicated. And there's an interesting marriage of of that kind of old-fashioned manufacturing processes. Uh, but using new materials. So, for example, you, you'd think about Audemars Piguet putting a ceramic uh, case, a ceramic royal oak case with a perpetual calendar movement inside it on a ceramic bracelet. That was quite a, that's quite a feat from a couple of years back from, from Audemars Piguet. And then, again, with AP, um, I think it was a couple of years back, they introduced the, the, the platinum royal oak perpetual calendar, which was the thinnest, and I think is still the thinnest perpetual calendar in the in, in the world, the automatic perpetual calendar, it's it's six point three mil 
thick, uh, the actual case, and the movement is just under three millimetres, so it's, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly thin and slender, considering what it does, apart from telling the time, but making sure the date's right as well at all times. So that, that's quite a thing. So I think, I think AP are up there from the way they execute some of the, uh, these old-fashioned crafts in, in a new style, in a new modern style. Yeah, and I think you've just referenced it, which we haven't talked about before, telling the time. Um, oh, yeah. it's, it's not just the calendar, is it? It's, there is a, um, a fun- a, a, another slightly more useful functionality to them as well, which is helpful. Um, okay, controversial question. Do you think the perpetual calendar has a place in the industry? Do we need it? I think whenever people want to know what day it is, I think it's, it's, I think it's, got, some, I think it's got some validity. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, watchmaking, you know, handcrafted, handcrafted watches do seem a little bit out of kilter with the modern world where everything's disposable and you can get the time from your mobile phone or your iWatch, etc., Apple Watch, rather. Um, so I, 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 uh, I think people will always appreciate uh, beautiful things, things that other people can't normally have because of the price or because of the exclusivity or because, you know, they're just made in, in such small numbers. So I would say perpetual calendars do have a place in the same way that a mechanical watch has a place in, uh, in people's lives these days, whether it's a £400 automatic watch or a £4 million diamond-clad, highly complicated wristwatch. So, yeah, I, I, would say, I would say a perpetual calendar does have a place in people's lives. Okay. Do you think it's a watch for connoisseur? It's never your first watch, is it? I think you've got to have an interest in... Yeah, I think you build up your, your interest in horology, um, and I think for, for collectors, um, they they would go for certain styles of watch, and then be interested in movements. You know, you you, particularly, you may want a chronograph from a certain brand, a perpetual calendar from another brand, a tourbillon from Breguet, say. So yeah, I think uh, I think it does have a, a place. Yes. Lucky lucky for us then, and and, and the industry. It is. Um, yeah, yeah. One thing I do think the industry missed this year. Which I, I feel quite, I feel quite strongly about. I know I've spoken to you about it previously. We are fortunate enough to see some, uh, uh, see the watch launches before the product hits the market. That's primarily our job. We make the selections where where we can either secure the watch or we feel it's appropriate to put it in the stores. Before the launches this year, we've seen a couple of brands, including in their new product, some perpetual calendars. So the one question I asked them it doesn't matter which brands they were, but when I saw them at the beginning of the year. I said, oh, and they've talked through the perpetual calendars. One question was asked, when's the launch date? When's it going to hit our markets? When can we sell it to our customers? One of them was September, and the other one was, I think it was April, and these were two separate brands. So I was curious to know, on a leap year in an industry that is about time, why the manufacturers themselves didn't celebrate this and get these watches out in time for February 2020? Um, because it doesn't really matter actually when either this podcast goes out or whether or when the watches are actually launched if it's not in line with the date. So I was quite curious to find out or to ask questions about their commerciality because it should be a celebration. And it feels like the industry as a whole, and to an extent us as retailers, there could have been a lot more that we could have done. We've got, um, I've curated uh, two small exhibitions in our stores in the States just with a collection of perpetuals that we've got and we've invited clients in. But that was just a, a, a small thing that we could have done. I just found it really interesting that everything is, revolves around the novelties. They're being launched in a particularly significant year with a functionality that is relatable only to that year, and it's not coming out in time. 
Oh, it's a wonderful world of watches, isn't it? I mean, you could argue it'll be right for the 30 and 31 days that, that go through the next uh, next 12 months after the leap year. That is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, I just it's it's. But everyone's missed this trick. That's that's. I just kind of think. So perhaps in four years' time, we'll we'll have it. We'll have, well, actually, in maybe two or three years' time, we'll have a think about it. And um, but it was many of the manufacturers, and it's yeah. not a criticism. It's just mm-hmm. it's an important watch. As you've identified, it's got a really significant place in the industry. And I think it should be celebrated. That's all. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's one of the one of the one of the great complications of watchmaking. Mm. Thank you for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to us for free on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And to discover more exclusive interviews, watch news, and latest trends, simply search Caliber Online. <laughs>